Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the CEO and founder of the Innovative Leadership Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about achieving employee-centric leadership. This interview is part of the Connex Executive Insight Series brought to you by Connex Partners. Connex Partners is the number one executive network for HR and healthcare professionals. Connex connects business leaders from across the U.S., helping them solve their greatest challenges together. With me on the show today is Heather Krentler, the Chief Administrative Officer at Continental Services. So Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Maureen. I'm very excited about today's conversation. So let's jump into the content. Continental is relatively entrepreneurial as a company. What talent challenges did you have to overcome in an environment where everyone is struggling with talent challenges? I would like to start by saying I'm no psychologist, but I do think that the labor market today more than ever before is looking for control. Coming out of the pandemic, we all lost some sense of control. And I think that that is at the seed of this chapter of the great, we're calling it the great resignation, the great shift, but whatever you want to call it, it's people exercising their control. And so one of the things that we experienced certainly was an increased challenge in terms of recruitment, an increased challenge in terms of employee engagement. And overall, how do you keep people inspired and innovating at a time when they themselves and the business as a whole is trying to survive. It's a very different line of thinking, and it's a hard switch to go off and on in the course of your day or your work week. So let's start with the challenges that we faced with recruitment. First of all, we were already having tough times recruiting certain types of workers even before the pandemic hit, particularly in warehouse, warehouse associates, and servers. Those were two areas that were already a challenge. One of the things that we thought we had figured out going into the pandemic years was if we have these high turnover, high volume positions, then let's think about where is the pain in that for us? Is it in the actual recruiting process? Is it in the onboarding? Is it in the churn in the team with the turnover itself? So what we zeroed in on was two things. One, the rate of pay within recruitment needed to be adjusted. And two, we needed to streamline the onboarding process so that high volume onboarding was not such a burden on the existing team. We were mostly wrong. Tell me a little bit about your labor force. So Continental is very diverse and pretty vast in terms of its labor force. Pre-pandemic, we had about 1,800 to 2,000 workers that spanned everything from corporate team members doing HR, technology, finance, to route drivers, warehouse associates, culinarians, servers. We have a vending business. We have a yacht charter business. We are all things food related to the business communities that we serve. And so... When you think about recruiting strategy, you have to have multiple strategies. The way that you will recruit for a dining location that is opening and all of the culinary talent that needs to be there will be very different from a new territory, a new vending market, for example, that you're going into. 
So we were generally speaking, speaking to the labor market in the same way, on the same media, in the same language, with the same sourcing strategies, the same recruiting process. That was something that needed to change. Coming into the pandemic, everything that was already tricky got infinitely harder. And so while rates of pay needed to be adjusted to lead the market in some cases, that still didn't cut it. That wasn't enough. It was a piece of the puzzle, but it wasn't the entire picture. And what we learned from that was while people would point to compensation as a reason for turnover, mm -hmm. what we learned was they did that only because it was an objective metric. It was something that was very clear. You either were making more or not. But what we learned was that it was so much more subjective than that and that we needed to look at the whole employee, the whole person, the whole experience and really create engagement strategies and retention strategies within these subcultures across Continental. And they were not the same. One great example is our largest warehouse. We were having a high degree of turnover. And for many years, we had chewed on this concept of a warehouse warriors program. This was a bit of a homegrown initiative that had started about five years ago, initially just celebrating the values of that subculture and what it meant to be a star player on the team. Where that stands today is an entire program that has not only a values component, an incentive comp aspect to it, a career pathing component and an entire overhaul of the physical space within that warehouse. We installed one of our own fresh food markets, Market 24-7, in that space and heavily subsidized the food offering there. We also are offering a hot food delivery through another aspect of our company. And it was almost overnight the impact that that overhauled program had on the culture. What we discovered was when you treat people like they are precious to you, they give it back to you and the, the commitment and the sense of camaraderie that is now happening there. We've created a space for them to congregate and to connect and to feel that, that gratitude that we feel for them. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but it was truly overnight and it was like turnover practically disappeared. So for the first time in my five years with Continental, that is not our number one challenge on the recruiting front. And so now what we are doing is taking that as a model and creating almost a playbook for the warehouse subculture to apply that in all of our other various locations. The most exciting thing about the whole program to me, though, is wasn't my idea, wasn't HR's idea. It was actually the people's ideas. We got in there and through surveys and focus groups and a lot of listening and a lot of challenging our assumptions, got to the heart of what kind of a work experience these people needed and deserved. And so what we were able to deliver to them through deep partnership with the operators was the cultural experience that they had designed for themselves. And that's why it worked. It wasn't HR swooping in and thinking we knew what was best for the people because we'd read some book somewhere. It was just shutting up and listening and trying to package their vision. And the other piece was the way that the operational leadership and the HR team members came together. You couldn't quite tell who was responsible for which pieces of the program because everyone had their hands in it. 
And that is also overall the spirit of one continental for us. It shouldn't be a look at me, look at what I did kind of a place. It's what have we done together. What is one continental and where did that come from? About two years ago, we really started experiencing the pain of scaling a business that had historically operated different service lines very independently. And what we kept saying to ourselves was, why do we operate these independently when the clients are the same? The person who you are catering a high-end event to may be the same person who you are feeding in one of our dining locations the following Monday. The person getting that soda out of the vending machine, those are all the same people. And yet we're speaking to them as if they are independently separate customers which is not the case. And so we really started coming together with this concept of one continental as an ethos. And it's meant to eliminate exclusive thinking and instead lean into who are all of the people who may touch this customer or this client? And how do we make sure that from not only a service offering standpoint, but also a technology standpoint, it's a seamless engagement with us and they feel absolutely no disruption in service. It sounds like you then, at some point, took on a project of looking at the customer journey. Yes. And from that, were able to identify maybe some gaps and some realignments in your process. That's right. And the concept of, for certain clients, having a concierge who is dedicated to that relationship and who has deep trusting relationships with every operation internally so that to the client side, it's one voice and everything else is in alignment on the back end. It's interesting, even the name of concierge versus customer service rep. Right. We don't expect these team members to be the experts at everything. We don't expect them necessarily to always be able to solve a problem. But what they're expected to do is make the connections. What they are expected to do is it's almost like um, an orchestra conductor. Right. They bring all of those pieces together and they are the face of our brand to the client. On the internal lens of all of this, it did some really cool things for our culture because people were able now to get a line of sight into other operations that they hadn't had before. And that spirit of curiosity started opening up ideas of, well, what if we partnered like this? And what if we brought our products together like that? How could we really put the client center to our strategies? And it stopped being so independent, so so siloed, and more collective. I'm just thinking of clients I've worked with, some who are siloed because the person in the job, the CXO, whatever title, says, this is mine and I own it. It's part of the customer experience, but this one's mine. How do you shift from that traditional way of leading And we want people to take ownership still to a collaborative approach where they feel both collaboration and I own my piece. That's a shift for many people. Yes. And it's a shift that started for us about four years ago. I credit our founder, Jim Barty, who urged us and led and championed this idea of cross-functional, cross-operational task forces. These were task forces that were not just comprised of leaders, but whoever had the talent, the interest, and the commitment to come to that table and problem seek and solve on a specific topic, whether it be margin protection or creative client solutions and products, 
to our people's own cultural experiences, those groups coming together, and here's the ticket, recognizing them, celebrating them. Suddenly, people who maybe had been used to, well, as long as I independently do a wonderful job, then I will be recognized. It shifted everyone's minds to, no, 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 it's this group of people. Look what they did, and that's what we're talking about. People start to let go of having to carry it all on their shoulders, and they start coming to the tables and wanting to be involved in what's happening there. Does the comp change? Because it seems like, again, to drive behavior, while what you're pointing to is brilliant, I've often seen people play well with a team and then go back to their desk and still act in the same way they always did. You're moving them forward as the whole enterprise, and that's a different shift. Yes. So shared rewards matter. And so most of these initiatives, if not all of them, I would, you know, I'm going to argue all of them can be measured. All of them have a financial outcome, no matter how soft they may appear on the surface. And so we have done a very good job of calculating the impact that those groups have made and giving those shared rewards back to the players. But you're absolutely right. If you don't make sure that your incentives and your compensation structures are aligned with what you see as a priority, both in terms of tasks and cultural behavior, you will miss the mark. So I assume also on the career pathing, I don't know if it's nine bucks or different people use different things, but also looking at we reward results and behaviors. Yes. Performance reviews are both related to people's, not just their output or their productivity, but their alignment with our values. All of our values are part of the performance review, and we do give feedback on each of them. You know, people joke about the values are in the conference room on the wall someplace, but I won't know what they are unless I'm looking at them versus do I give examples of customer-centric means X. Yeah. So we've all probably taken, whether it's the post office or an airline flight, and my luggage is lost, and it's the middle of the night, and I call, and they tell me how important I am. Like, it's midnight. I have been here for 45 minutes waiting for my stuff. If I was important, somebody would answer this darn phone, <laughs> right? So important looks like you staff at the points in time where people need you the most. I am making the assumption that you've taken values and translated them to behaviors that can be measured. That's right. The way that we bring those to life is twofold. One, we have a program called I Am Continental. It's uh, been around for about five or six years now, and it has evolved like everything else in our business. But the intention of it is to celebrate, recognize, and contextualize or give examples of what do these values in real time look like? How do you recognize them? And who, who is exhibiting them? It is a peer-to-peer -peer recognition platform. People nominate one another on the basis of how they have exhibited a value. And then we have quarterly, it's our version of an all hands called a Continental Connect. And in our Continental Connects, we share some of the top and most exemplary examples of people living those values. So it's just a constant reminder for folks of this is what it looks like. Let's never forget the importance of it. In addition to the performance review, every one of my team monthlies begins with two things. One, team brags, and those are always within the context of our values. So we sit around and brag on somebody. What did you see them do and how does it relate to a value? 
And then the second thing that we do is fail forwards. I will admit it's pretty infrequent that we can articulate the forward aspect of the fails, but that's really not the meat of it. The meat of it is showcasing vulnerability and celebrating calculated risk. And that is where the real juice is. How do you celebrate it? I'm imagining, again, this is a cultural change because the first time you do this, probably no one wants to stand up and say, this is what I messed up this week. <laughs> I usually go first. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> But what I will say to all of the leaders who are listening, we have a golden moment right now. Thank you, COVID. Actually, this is one good thing to come out is mm -hmm. it changed the game. And so any leader who maybe felt like they need to seem like they've got it all together and they have all the answers, the fun of it now is none of us do. So uh -huh. it's a great moment to laugh at ourselves and showcase to our teams, listen, I thought I had it figured out. Here's what I learned. I didn't. Who wants to help me either fix the mistake or try again? And it just brings a spirit of levity uh -huh. to the conversation. It makes the space a lot safer for people. When my folks goof, they don't try to hide it. In fact, I usually find out after it's already fixed and maybe even has already been leveraged for something better. Mm -hmm. There's just that sense of I can own this and not feel any shame associated with it. And I can really lean into it and feel good about it. Yeah, one of the conversations we were having yesterday is the idea that good leadership is not the traditional somebody broke something and I as the leader have to run in and fix it, but exactly what you've said that somebody broke something and they fixed it. Yes. All I need to know is, yes, in fact, it broke. Yes, in fact, it got fixed. Are there any implications and what consequences do we need to manage? What changes do we need to make? You know, we've all talked about from Agile for years, the idea of fail fast, fail forward. But so few people actually did it. They said the words, but they didn't build it in system-wide. There may have been groups of people who did it in software development, but not in finance, mm -hmm. especially not in finance because you're really not supposed to report wrong stuff. But when we make mistakes, that's a place you need to fix it. Yeah. And I think we're uniquely, I don't know how unique now in this post-pandemic world, I think a lot of businesses are are needing to pivot. But even before the pandemic, we were growing so fast that nothing was forever. So things did break. If it worked just fine the year before, it was crumbling under the weight of growth. So we just got really used to it, really comfortable with it. Tell us a couple examples of things that you experimented with. And I'll use the language of experimentation, not failure. I'm not crazy about that term. Yeah. What did you experiment with that seemed brilliant at the moment but didn't pan out? We reinvented the recruiting function throughout the pandemic. Okay. We took a look at that function and thought to ourselves, this feels an awful lot like Lucille Ball in the Chocolate Factory. We just had all these wrecks coming at us and we were dropping some candidates. Shame on us, but it happens. We were dropping some candidates on the floor and it was just not... We didn't feel great about it. And so we took a step back and thought to ourselves, how do we run this function like a sales function? What does that funnel look like? How do we track it better? Also, what are the high volume, high repetition, potentially, I wouldn't say low value, but 
just because of the volume, maybe lower value actions that our team was undergoing, things like the scheduling of interviews, things like having to always tell the same story of who we are every time they get on a 15-minute phone screen. That eats up the first five or 10 minutes before you ever actually begun recruiting. Those are just a couple examples. So some of the things that we did was let's use technology to handle all of the scheduling. Let's create videos that tell our story. Let's execute a social media strategy so that people recognize Continental. They know who we are and are already excited to have that phone call with us. One of the things that didn't work for us was we launched a tool, which is working well for us now, but we launched up our first robot recruiter, an artificial intelligence widget on our website that would engage talent and not only direct them to the appropriate position for themselves, but also connect them with the scheduling tool. We went several weeks thinking that everything was working perfectly only to find out that there was a location error and people were falling off of the engagement. And here we thought we had it all figured out. It was working well, but she wasn't. So we had a little performance chat with our robot and got it back up to snuff. And now it's working very well for us. It's fascinating that we teach robots. Yes. That you're having a performance management, even the languaging. We did an interview a few years ago about robotic process automation. And that guest talked about that in some instances, robots are paying union dues to assuage the idea from the unions that you're taking away our jobs. Now, this was pre-pandemic, so the labor equation was different. Mm -hmm. You know, something you said that really resonates, again, pre-pandemic versus during and post, is HR in the environment where we had more people wanting jobs than jobs available and because of the volume of candidates. Right. So you might get a thousand people applying for a job and it's just not possible to respond with a personal response to everyone. Now, with it flipped, you may still get as many candidates, but organizations are finding ways through automation largely to give someone the experience of feeling valued for their relationship with you because it may, in fact, be a longer term relationship, even if they don't fit this job. That's right. And one of the things that we really do focus on, in part because of our our growth, everything has to be looked at through the lens of scalability. And so evaluating each role on the centralized teams for those high volume, potentially low value or low complexity tasks, and making sure that those get either outsourced or resolved through technology solutions, it not only scales better, but it makes the job more fun for that individual. They are now getting to sink their teeth into the type of tasks that squeeze their brain matter more that they have to develop to be able to be excellent at. Can you give some examples of what you used to do manually that has been automated? Because again, we all use these words, but I don't know that everyone has a sense of these are the specific things that actually get automated. Yeah. So some Early, early ones were claims management, right? Getting that to be outsourced. We created a lot of courses in Continental University. And so now all of that coursework gets assigned to people based on, for example, hire date or if they are promoted to a management level. 
instead of having to manually go in and think about what does this person need to learn, we've created these curriculums and the system now knows, assign this curriculum if this has happened, and we just can check the report to see. So a kind of a learning management system. That's right. That's right. Certainly the most automation that I have seen has been within the recruiting function. Everything from navigating candidates through the consideration funnel, through artificial intelligence, to using calendar and scheduling services, to text, whether it's engaging candidates through automated text dialogue, to there's an entire lead generation science that goes behind our social media strategies in terms of those campaigns. And so now what our recruiters are doing is really focusing on that lower end of the funnel and having richer conversations with candidates about their careers and what it would mean to be part of the team rather than all of the other things. Are you more transparent now with what a career might look like? So can someone go on your website and say, I'm applying for a warehouse position. I want to make sure my values align with what they deliver. I want to see what my career is going to look like. It seems like people are taking more ownership of this rather than I just want to get a job and get paid. And then you'll tell me, I want to now be in partnership with you. Yes, it gets back to that topic of control. People want to be designing their own careers. And even if someone doesn't want to see their role necessarily change, they want to also be sure that they get to shape their own experience in that role, even if they stay in it for a dozen years. So we did just relaunch our website. Our marketing team has been exceptional at telling our story. And that is a big piece of the story that we're telling people. We have a lot of individuals in our organization who have been with us for decades, who started out in one role and have found their way either straight to the top or side to side and experienced different parts of our business. And they have a great breadth of understanding. Um, so internal mobility is one of the KPIs that we track. We have something called shared staffing in our organization, and it can be as high as three to 500 individuals given the season. And those are workers who really are sort of gig workers, on-call workers, and it's sort of on their own terms. They have the opportunity to accept or decline shifts within our event group, and we try to market to them and say, you've been a wonderful on-call team member for us, but we have this entire other landscape of opportunities if you'd like to take your career in that direction. So is the on-call thing almost like an Uber app where you just put it out and you, know, you get whatever bid? Can they bid you up? I won't take it for $50, but I'll do it for $100. So very similarly, they cannot bid you up. The rate is the rate. The rate is how that particular shift has been budgeted for. But they absolutely, there are tiers of participation. And so they can do anything from being that super flexible on my terms when I feel like it worker to very dedicated core team members who we will say, if you're going to commit to us in this way, we're going to commit this many shifts, this many hours, and this level of compensation to you. It is more valuable to us to have if we can plan on your commitment. So we're going to pay you for that commitment. We're also going to train you and you will gain skills and knowledge in the service industry that someone who has a more casual interaction with us may not get access to. 
it's interesting as we think about moving from employees who had jobs for a long period of time to shorter tenure to the, the kind of the job hopper, gig worker, and where will individuals based on their preferences and place in life and all of those things choose and change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you said, you may be a gig person now and stepping into a point where you are starting a family and want a steady income, or you may be starting a family and not want so many hours. Yeah. And that idea that you can customize and we can still count on people because if everyone's special and you don't show up for a whole shift, that doesn't work either. Yes. I think that it certainly would be simpler if we had a template for every job and every team and everyone had to fit in that nice, neat little category, but it would be infinitely less successful. And so what we've had to get really good at is this idea of work your way. You know, it's funny, we sell ourselves to clients under this, you know, food your way, recognizing that employers have had to be so flexible and have had to operate their businesses so differently. And so we're trying to be flexible with them with our offerings in the same way we had to look at our workforce and say, work your way. We will create more than one category for you to step into and feel like it fits. And so it sounds like this is a significant differentiator for you and when you go to the labor market. Yes, it's a it's a very big differentiator. It gives people a sense of no matter what they're really looking for in their career, there is some type of work with us that will fit. And not only the nature of the work, but the number of hours that they want to commit to, there's something here for pretty much everybody, even within our corporate ranks. Looking at talent differently and thinking about remote talent differently and and really, Uh if you want the very best person for the job, how flexible are you willing to be? And that doesn't only mean where will they perform the work, but how will they perform the work? It's interesting. I'm thinking about the change in leadership mindset from, and you said it, from here's the job, take it or leave it. This is what's most efficient. We've optimized for operational effectiveness. And that means we put as few people so we don't have to manage all the people stuff to optimizing for employee engagement, which is just a different equation entirely. My assumption is a different culture, a different leadership approach. Like you talked about fast growth. Have you had a turnover in leadership as your mindset shifted and as your culture shifted? So thankfully, we have not had turnover in leadership, but it was definitely working muscles that had not been worked in a while for folks or maybe even ever. New skills had to be learned. There was a lot of limiting thinking going on, assumptions being made around how does one lead throughout the pandemic? How does one manage What does it mean to be productive? And so we had a lot of really healthy debate at the leadership level over the last two years around each of those topics. One of the greatest challenges, and I know I'm in vast company with this next statement, we struggled with remote work, especially being an organization that predominantly is on-site work. So how do you have leaders and managers working from home while you have a lot of our frontline workers in the field, in the fray, and putting their lives at risk? 
how do you as a leader set expectations for yourself and for your people? So most leadership did come on site throughout the pandemic intermittently to try and show that sense of spirit and support for what our frontline workers were doing. But many of them struggled with how do I manage the rest of my team remotely? It's very easy, and I dare say lazy, but I say that without judgment, to lean on FaceTime as an indicator of performance. It's easy to assume that because you see someone working, that they're producing. And I think saying it out loud, we all can hear how silly that sounds, but it is a default way of looking at productivity. And so our leadership team really had to reevaluate what does it mean to be a high performer if you're remote? And because I love alliteration, I just kept coming back to the same words that start with the letter P. And they were personal relationships, productivity, and proximity. And so speaking with my peers and speaking with other managers in the organization who were struggling with someone who they couldn't see or monitor physically, I would just take them through each of those categories with a line of questioning. Tell me about their personal relationships. What do they know about their colleagues? What do you know about them? How are they maintaining those connections? Do they know things beyond the transactional? So if they're getting on a call and they're going through the, the agenda, that is insufficient. They need to also know for their own team members, how is everyone's mental well-being? What are the challenges that people are facing? What is getting them excited or inspired about the business? That's a whole other level to just getting on a call and getting the job done. So productivity. I was lucky in that Continental had long used tools that helped us on this one, which were the job success profile and action plan. So job success profiles are different where a job description is simply a list of the tasks that one does. A job success profile says this is the impact this role has when optimized. So each year we take those and create action plans that say this year I will accomplish these outcomes to get closer to that vision of that job success profile. Well, with a tool like that, when you're checking in with someone it is very objective. You know whether or not they're making progress to those toward those goals. And so managers who took that performance rhythm approach found it fairly easy to gauge whether or not people were delivering. I love the idea that I also, as an employee, back to I want control. If I know what impact I'm supposed to be making, I can then recalibrate versus I know the tasks I'm supposed to do. And often those tasks, as you're growing so quickly, the tasks become lower value tasks over time. And if I don't have insight and the mindset of impact versus activity, then I could be working really, really hard and making limited impact. And then the whole cycle of when you give me feedback, I'm going to defend how hard I'm working versus understanding even the language of impact. That is so true. And you're so right. There's just not a lot of flavor in what I would call the table stakes of a job description. It's just what's done. It's not what's lived or felt. And there isn't a lot of meaning. And there isn't a lot of creative license in those things. There isn't a lot of how do I put my own stamp on something in those tasks. So getting people back to those, and I will confess I can't tell you how many crumpled versions of my own job success profile and action plan landed in the garbage because COVID kept making us pivot. 
But even that activity of saying, okay, well, now what? Everything I thought we were going to do this quarter or this year can't be done. But what can be done? You know, that takes us back to one of your very first statements that as leaders and as humans, we want some level of control, right? The pandemic has put me in a place where about the only thing I can control is the food I put in my mouth because I can still go to the grocery store. I don't know where my money's coming from. In some cases, I don't know who's going to take care of my kids or how they're going to go to school. And it's changing day by day. The fact that you can control the impact you make in the world yes. aligned with your values. I think that's the other piece is the organization has clear values. It encourages me as an individual to ask, am I aligned with these values? It sounds like the values are around the impact food has on people's lives and health and those things. I imagine most people are not misaligned with them, especially our younger generations do think values first and impact first. So it also sounds like a really nice recruiting and retention environment. Very much. We are very entrepreneurial, and so we do tend to attract people who have an internal locus of control and who show up to the party and say, here's what I'm going to do to make it fun. Here's, here's what I can contribute. And that's, that's really across the board. Even if they're not in a traditional leadership role, we have a lot of leaders all throughout the organization, whether they're leading subcultures, they're leading by example with living the values. And so people, generally speaking, going through COVID still maintained this sense of control. There is something that I can change and make better here. And I think that that, we just kept using the term grit. I think that grit was rooted in that foundation of never letting go of their own personal power. It's fascinating the words you've used around employee-led personal power, empowerment. I often listen for people use the same words, but I don't trust they actually put it in action. You know, we all talk about it on Twitter or whatever. We read something in a blog, but I don't always have the sense that if I walked into your organization, it would feel different than many people who are using the same words. <laughs> Walk us through, like, what does it feel like to be in an employee-led environment? And again, I'm thinking of leaders who are of a different generation whose sense of I'm a good leader because I'm in charge and I get things done and yeah. people do what I say, how did they shift to allowing employees to lead? I'm going to go back in time a little bit because that context matters. Our founder really led the organization from the lens of anything that you think I need to know to help you have the experience you deserve to have here, come to me. And he is still very much like that. And although the organization is much larger today, he has instilled that in each of each of our leaders. And so people do have this sense of license when it comes to their own perspective and being heard. We have a very a higher than normal, I would say, between 70 and 80 percent response rate anytime we do an engagement survey. That is because people do believe that they are being listened to and they are. I'm lucky in that I came into a culture that already had a lot of that going on. The other part that was already working for us is 
some of that pre-one continental concept of these individual, every dining site location, every warehouse location, even this, the different operations were very much self-led. And so people had a lot of influence and impact on how those were and are operated. So I can't take credit for that, but that has long been part of who we are. But if you were to walk in today, I think that what you would also find is a little bit by design and a little bit out of necessity. We have been understaffed throughout this pandemic. When you can't do it all and you don't know it all, you suddenly don't want all of the control. <laughs> so, so there has been a lot of, hey, if you can get after that, even if it's something that is, quote unquote, traditionally HR's job or marketing's job or whoever's job, we're going to give you the access, the tools. I may tell you, you know, don't break this. Don't go further than that. But in large part, have at it. What's the harm? I'll give you a current example that I'm so very excited about. We were facing some challenges with engaging people in the onboarding process and beyond. So we would recruit folks in, but then especially with some of those infrequent, more gig-focused workers, we would lose the relationship. And so they've taken it upon themselves to begin to build a more intimate and frequent calendar of interactions with talent as they're recruited into the business. Now, one could argue, well, shouldn't HR have done that? Yeah, probably. Could we have at this? No. And are they doing a great job? Absolutely. And we're part of it with them. But they're leading the charge and we're playing a supporting role, which I'm all about. We are working to maintain and amplify a culture of no blame, no claim. We use a framework that looks at organizational vibrancy. The value of the framework is at one level of vibrancy, I can do my job and deliver the tasks. At the next level, we're growing and developing. At the third level, we're reaching our ultimate potential. And the only way to get to that top level is by things like you're talking about. Everyone is respected for their ability to have good ideas all the time. Now, certainly, everyone also has bad ideas on occasion. It's not that we're going to take every idea everyone has. The only way we get to our best is that we don't have the department of special smart people and then the rest of them. Right. We trust that people across the enterprise, we hired them because they're good, whether they're in a gig role or a full-time role or a senior executive role. But your senior execs aren't going to understand the lived experience of a gig person who can't show up because their sitter just canceled and they, they'd have to leave their child in the backseat of the car mm -hmm. while they're serving. And these are real experiences. I'm assuming your founder is either beyond the age of raising babies or can afford childcare. I'm assuming also some of your team can't. And those aren't value judgment. That's just demographics. So good ideas are going to come from your gig people on some employee experience stuff and some customer experience stuff that no one else will have. That's right. And it is that humility as leaders of recognizing that the best ideas come from the people living the experience, the people closest to it, instead of being the designers of those solutions, being the facilitators of those solutions and the champions of them where appropriate. That is what we're really focusing on because this is bigger than us and we can't do it all and we shouldn't more importantly, do it all.
that's a really interesting point rather than the should have, have come from HR. No, actually, because everyone gets to own good ideas. Mm-hmm. And the celebration of, hey, we just implemented something that we didn't come up with. Yes. That is a whim, not a, and I know I fall into this. I should have come up with that. No. That's just going to limit me. And I want to be the owner of all good ideas too, secretly, you know? Yeah. We have to get rid of that. And anytime we sniff that, we call attention to it. And, you know, when you really think, I always ask the question, what's the worst that's going to happen? Right. And how are we going to know if the worst is happening? There are always metrics. Mm-hmm. We are always going to know before it, something devastating occurs. So let's all relax and let let everyone have some fun with these solutions. And there's a level of ownership that comes with it, too. There's a level of commitment, a level of buy-in and dedication to making it a success when you have the people closest to it invested in the design process. So I don't hear the words, but I hear the underlying sentiment of a bias for yes and a bias for experimentation. Mm -hmm. If someone comes up with an idea that seems good, or even if it seems maybe mediocre, how do we shape it so they can win by implementing or testing it? Yes, very much so. And just this week, actually, I had someone set up some time for me in the organization who I don't have a ton of direct contact with, but she had taken it upon herself to design a solution that affected a a totally different operation, the organization, which she was excited about. And my role in that was simply to help her think through, number one, how far upstream with her problem did she go? Let's make sure we're not just addressing symptoms. And then number two, who are the stakeholders she has to influence and how is she going to go about it? But it's all systems go. Anyone can do that. Back to the vibrancy framework. The idea that if we're going to be the most successful in our sector or whatever words you want to put to a high growth, brilliant company, those underlying mindsets, values, commitments have to be there. Mm -hmm. To use your word, as soon as you sniff out the, the limiting beliefs, and we all have them right? I want to be the smartest person in the room. I know it's not true because I hire smart people. Right. But, the, you know, secretly there, there is, again, that, you know, that little girl who wanted to be acknowledged. And so how do we own that that is also true and create a culture that's bigger than each of us? I think it gets back to leaders who are vulnerable and authentic, truly, because I, I think that whether it's wanting to be the smartest person in the room or the other persona I see often is the hardest working person in the room. They just burn the midnight oil and they never stop. And, and I'm sure there's you know, that list goes a lot longer, but creating a culture that's like, I don't got to be the anything person in the room. I just have to be the person in the room who shows up for one another and recognizes that I'm not at the top of the list and don't need to be. And when you don't need to be, nobody else, suddenly nobody else looking to you feels the need to be. And then you come together to produce the best outcome. So what I hear is balancing head and heart. Yeah. At its core, you genuinely care about the precious human beings Mm -hmm. who show up and dedicate their time to doing a good job for you. I will start crying if we go down that light of (laughs) They are precious to us. I can't express to you. Mm -hmm. And I know everyone has their story of COVID, but watching what was given 
and the spirit of grit and the spirit of resilience and then still showing up now in 2022 with excitement and not having lost any of that love is remarkable. No one leader produced that. Leadership didn't produce that. They produced that for each other. So it's our job to just don't take that away and don't get in the way of it. One of the phrases I've heard is we don't have to engage people. We have to stop disengaging them. Yeah. That many people are by their nature. They want to show up engaged. They want to do their best because that's more fun. Mm -hmm. Having a governor put on my car makes my car less fun to drive. Similarly, putting a governor on my essence makes it less fun to interact with other people. I'll share an early mistake that I made that we're rectifying this year to the tune of what you're saying. When I came into the organization, we had pockets that were doing a very good job of investing in what I'll call uh, social connection activities, whether they were learning opportunities or just having fun together, mm-hmm. you know, bowling, partying, you know, whatever it was. I came in and I thought, that's great. But let's look at the rest of the organization. We have these deserts of engagement and celebration. So let's let's pool the funds. Let's make sure that we have we are consistently celebrating folks across the board. And so we created a program and we felt real good about ourselves. Everyone's getting the same amount of funding per person and same themes each quarter and the same types of activities. And I mean, it was like meh. Mm. It just didn't produce. And so this year, we're going back to the drawing board and we're saying, right line of thinking in terms of investment per person, everyone should should have that. But let us push those funds as far into the organization and what they do with those and how they choose to celebrate one another should be very customized. And yes, we can still hang on to these cultural touchstones, but everything else let go. It's interesting how you're balancing the one continental with the customized experience. Because as much as you say one, you've just given an example of where really it's about the specific group who is unique. And in other cases where you're touching customers with a concierge who is shared. And that's that filter of scalability, right? So with growth, we knew coming into high growth years that certain amounts of system framework structure had to be put in place and applied consistently to bear the weight of what we were going to be. But sometimes we went too far. And so always asking yourself, hold on, is this meeting that filter of scalability or have we gone too far? Are we making it about ourselves? Each of us has a set of assumptions about what will allow us to scale. At the Institute, we're in the process of that. Where are we putting structures in place that will make sense? And where are we putting structures in place that will constrain us? Mm-hmm. It's an experiment. It is. We'll know it when we see it and we'll know it when it doesn't work. Yep. That's so true. And it does test all of our preconceived notions about what good looks like. Yeah. And how quickly we can change when we get it wrong. <laughs> so Heather, as we're ending... For our listeners who are your peers, what do you want them to take away from this conversation? What do you wish that they would do differently so that the precious people working for them have 
a good experience as well, like your folks do? I would say let go of the pressure and the responsibility of feeling like you have to know the answers and that you have to design the solutions all of the time. As leaders, that we carry that burden almost like martyrs at times, and we beat ourselves up when we don't have the answers. Let go of that and find better methods to listen to your people and empower them to design their own solutions. Beautiful. And you've given brilliant examples of how that actually works and where you're balancing employee-led and still delivering results and still having fiduciary control and the, the things that leaders need to do, they're still doing. It's not a complete employee control free for all. It's a dynamic balance and it's changing as you go forward. It'll be all different a year from now. <laughs> so where would our listeners read more about what you're doing? Are you on LinkedIn? I am. I'm on LinkedIn. And our newly launched website will continue to evolve and more rich media and videos telling our story will continue to be added. We're going to be showcasing our people and showcasing the choose your own adventure that is being part of Continental. Thank you, Heather, for sharing your experiences and to our listeners and also to our sponsor, Connex. Thank you for sponsoring such insightful information. To our listeners, I encourage you to think about what is Continental doing that you could apply in your organization. And I want to thank you. We're all navigating this environment of uncertainty and each of us gets to show up and do our best and make mistakes and get back up and learn and continue. And what we do as leaders ripples through the entire ecosystem. So thank you for your leadership whichever seat you sit in. We look forward to seeing you again soon.